newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. And welcome to another edition of the Media Project here from Northeast Public Radio. This is our weekly review of what's gone on in the media, and somehow we're going to try to make some sense out of it. What doesn't make any sense is that we're recording this last year, and it's going to air next year, but it's really this year, so we'll 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 straighten that out, and if it doesn't, it'll give you distraction in the meantime. Whatever. Uh, who am I? I'm Ira Fussfeld, the retired publisher of the Daily Freeman of Kingston, New York, sitting in for Rex Smith. I'm joined by Alan Shartok, CEO of Northeast Public Radio, by Judy Patrick, longtime former editor of the Daily Gazette of Schenectady, New York, and now a vice president of the New York Press Association. And Ian Pickus is here. Ian is the news director at WAMC, and he has just celebrated his 13th anniversary with the station. Hey. And I'm not sure if there's a bar, yeah, and I'm not sure if there's a bar mitzvah joke in there, but. Uh, <laughs> Today he is a senior member of the staff. At Ira, the thanks. Thanks for following me on Twitter, and as I said elsewhere, uh, both my anniversary here at AMC and the bar mitzvah were both 1998 Yankees themed. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to just warn Alan and Judy just in case uh, Ian and I start talking about the Yankees. That could take up the whole half hour, so uh, cut us off immediately. I'm, I'm going to try hard not to do that. Anyway, let's let's get on to the serious business of the news, and there's one that's particularly serious. I want to see if uh, the group agrees with, with me on how serious it is. And this is uh, a, an order by a state Supreme Court judge in New York that prevented the New York Times from running a story about uh, an operation called Project Veritas, which many of you know is a far-right activist group and uh, does stuff like undercover and trying to sneak up on people and discrediting media and liberal politicians. The the judge uh, said, no, the New York Times can't print that stuff, and moreover, it has to give back any documents that it has obtained from Veritas. Uh, subsequently, a, an appeals court has temporarily lifted that order, at least partially so, saying the Times can keep the material for the time being, but it's still preventing it from running any stories. Boy, this is a, a this is a, a major ruling. I I think, uh, guys, what do you think about that, Alan? Well, you are you are right about one thing. I have never That's read. All? Well, yeah, it is actually. Um, <laughs> But I I have never read so much self-promotion as the Times has been doing about this. After all, this is very dangerous the way they see this. And it sets a bad precedent for them uh, that there can be limits on, you know, pre-publication, all the rest of it. And that, that, that has been hard fought for years and years. So um, the Times has been writing, running quite a few stories and, and a full editorial on the subject. So they must really think this is a very tough, uh, tough road to hoe here. And and to Judy and Ian, you, it sounds like Alan is limiting to limiting the measure of concern to the New York Times having concerns. Do you guys, as broadcaster and a print person, uh, share that view? That's just the New York Times that should be concerned. I think what the New York Times does often sets the tone for the rest of our industry. And uh, as Alan says, you know, the Supreme Court has held 
for half a century that there cannot be prior restraint on on speech when it comes to uh, reporting. For me, it's just a very ironic situation given uh, Project Veritas and its long history of uh, duplicity and how it publishes its own stories. I would hope that in the long run, the the Times is uh, able to go ahead and and publish what it has. Uh, it's not just the New York Times that should be concerned. Uh, the WAMC should be concerned, and so should all of the print and digital operations that you represent at the Press Association, no? Oh, certainly. It strikes at the heart of the First Amendment because this whole concept of prior restraint, newspapers, any journalism should not, uh, no judge should be able to tell you ahead of time what you can and cannot publish. It's essentially censorship. The idea that you could go in and tell tell the small town paper, the local radio station, you cannot broadcast, you cannot publish. That's a basic um, protection of the First Amendment. Judges, government cannot tell us we cannot do one thing or another. That's what was so stunning, surprising, alarming, outrageous about this court decision. The other aspect of it that was clearly wrong was the judge was ordering the New York Times to destroy documents they had collected in support of their story, arguing that it was attorney-client privilege that was the Times didn't have the right to publish. Well, that's all, that's crazy. That's not that's not how things work. Now, at this point, um, the appellate. Division of State Supreme Court has has put a stay on this, that the New York Times does not have to destroy the information they have for their story. It's going to come um, up again in early January. So this has not been decided at all. Most people agree that it was just a wrong-headed decision by this this local judge, um, and there everyone is hoping that it gets turned around. But let's not forget the fact that at the highest levels of the judicial system, at the U.S. Supreme Court, some of the judges there have already indicated that they think some of the press um, freedoms are too broad. And I think 2022 could be a very dangerous uh, year for uh, journalists. Alan, in addition to being surprised, me being surprised, Judy being surprised that this, this verdict came down as it did originally, uh, I was surprised because it was a state Supreme Court judge in New York. You have a theory about why? where did they find a judge in New York that would uh, that would actually uphold this? Uh, well, well Ira, you put your finger right on it. Um, the First of all, there is something we all know about, uh, lawyers know about it, and that is something called judge shopping. You bring a case where you know you've got a sympathetic judge. But, you know, there is a lot of resentment out there about the way that newspapers have and, and, and radio stations and others have done their jobs. They, they're, they're entitled to a certain amount of protection that has been established, as Judy well points out, uh, over the years. And who knows whether the New York Times didn't take that judge's um, announcement of his son's impending nuptials. And I'm, I'm being funny about that, of course, or trying to be, which is that people have long histories, as you know, Ira, <laughs> and Judy knows, people have long histories and resentments about papers. So you can say, well, it's judicial, it's legal. This is based on legal theory. Or you can say, that judge was one PO'd guy uh, about something that happened maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and here was an I'll show him. Um, we've all put up with that. We've met somebody who is uh, who talks to you and says, oh, you're from the Schenectady paper? 
Well, I remember when they did this or did that, or you're from WAMC. And uh, there's a, a whole bunch of background. Now, we can talk as a journalistic panel all we want about about the concept of is this good or is this bad. But I'm just simply saying there are a lot of things out there uh, that are ancillary to, um, to decisions that are made by judges. It's hard to believe that a judge would fall into the category that you describe, but, but you're right. We've all experienced uh, people having anger at our our own institutions because of non-related matters such as, I mean, I used to give speeches saying, why, why do people hate their local newspaper? Well, they may have misspelled a name in an obituary. They may sure. not have run their kid's picture at the class play. They may not have picked them for the all-star team in baseball. And uh, those little things combine and, uh, and create a dislike, uh, irrationally so, in my opinion. But, uh, boy, I, I didn't think it would reach the level of a state Supreme Court judge. Judy, you said that the, the court, the next stage is a couple of weeks from now? Correct. It's mid-January. Yeah. Yeah. They're back in court, and we'll see uh, where this eventually lands. I can imagine that um, this this decision, if it's upheld, could eventually make its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and Lord knows what will happen there. Well, that's a good segue to what's going on in the world uh, in general, or in this country in general, about the, the partisan divide, the silos, the sharp division that we have in this country. And as it relates to the media, and I'm, I'm looking at a story by a critic in the L.A. Times by the name of Lorraine Ali, the headline of which is, The Crisis of Democracy is a Media Crisis and the Mainstream Press is Losing. And she's making the point of the, a number of the tactics that are being used by right-wing uh, outlets such as Tucker Carlson's and Fox News, while at the same time, the more traditional broadcast outlets are still playing by the rules that have been established over decades. And uh, she calls it both sides journalism, which uh, suggests that people like Chuck Todd on Meet the Press or Chris, Chris Wallace when he was on Fox or David Muir of ABC feel the need to have the other side when the other side objectively is off the rails and all you're doing by using the other side is giving them oxygen. I think there are no numerous other examples of this. I'm curious to see what you guys think. Ian, how do you work it at uh, WAMC in the newsroom? If you Are you interviewing using both sideism? Well, we do try to give everybody a chance. And I think Alan taught me uh, early on in this job that we have a pretty smart audience here. And if somebody says something um, objectionable, untrue, yeah, you call it out uh, and you try to make sure that the truth is being aired. But you also have to trust to a certain degree that the audience is going to be smart enough to make their own opinion about what they're hearing. So, you know, for many years on shows like The Congressional Corner and others, people who are you know running for office or in office have had their fair shot at the airwaves. And we want to give them the platform so that the people listening can make up their own minds. I think things have changed. Uh, and I noticed it in my job um, after the 2016 election. You know, a lot of times uh, before people uh, in our audience would maybe complain about a certain commentator or politician appearing. But after that, it became, why are you giving this person any airtime at all? They're part of the the fascist movement to end America. So the, the tenor of the audience has certainly changed, although I think what we do is basically where it was, although I will say we've talked about this before on the show, some of the uh, you know far-right uh, Trump supporters in Congress have, have stopped making media appearances on places like WAMC. Well, you know... 
that's true, Ian. I can think particularly of a congresswoman from the North Country, Elise Stefanik, uh, who won't come anywhere near these microphones, even though we treat everybody extremely fairly uh, when we are interviewing them and when we're, when we're with them. But, you know, Ira, Judy, um, the, uh, Ian, the, the, we have had a debate for years about what we call other-sideism, which is at what point do you give honor to the other side by, by giving them time, either in the newspaper or on the air? Now, we like to think we do that here because we think it's the right thing. Uh, when we're talking about other-sideism, and we often come to this point, was there another side to the Holocaust? So, sure, there are Holocaust deniers out there, Ira. Uh, on the other hand, we know that uh, millions and millions and millions of people died at the hands of the, of the Nazis. So do you honor it by some people coming up from Connecticut and saying, uh, you know, there was no Holocaust and, and giving the, their side of it? It's a very difficult decision to make because I know how I feel about that. Let's say for the sake of discussion that Elise Stefanik, the aforementioned congresswoman yeah. who is not showing up on your air by her choice, that she agreed to come on and you did an interview with her and she made a statement, uh, a, a Trump-like statement. Would, would you advocate that Ian's team in the newsroom call her up on it and say, wait a minute, that's not true? Is that the reporter's job, even in this day and age, or is it to let them go ahead unchallenged? No, they have to be challenged when they say something that's uh, incorrect, and we would do that. On the other hand, I do think everybody who gets interviewed at this radio station is treated extremely respectfully. Ian? I would just direct anyone who's interested to listen to our last one-on-one -on -one interview with her, which was conducted by North Country Bureau Chief Pat Bradley just before the January 6th vote about a year ago when Congresswoman Stefanik announced that she would vote against certification of President Biden's victory. Pat was extraordinarily respectful and measured, but she did challenge Congresswoman Stefanik with uh, historical facts and pushed her to explain her position. And, you know, that's the last time we talked to her. I think WAMC comes out looking fine in the wash. Judy, what, what about it from the print digital side? Well, you know, one of the concerns, especially now, is the both sides approach has enabled right wing fanatics to appear normal. I actually remember getting caught up in the both sidesism issue back when we started to cover climate change because we would, you know, we would listen to people who would argue, no, there's there's no the climate isn't changing, you know, and we would we would try to balance our stories in retrospect we probably should have taken a harder analysis of both sides and and not given as much attention to people who were denying climate change back in the day. So it's always been an issue we've dealt with, but I agree that I think the press bends over backward way too often to try to give credence to some of these far uh, extremist viewpoints and um, rather than calling out. Um, we see this with Joe Manchin with the with the coverage of of his opposition to the Build Back Better um, legislation. The press is trying so hard to call out Democrats that they're really not examining, you know, how obstinate and obstructionist the Republicans have been. And I, and I think it's, it's a reaction to pressure they're getting from people, from readers, from, from listeners, from viewers who are arguing that we're not covering the right wing 
far enough. We we even got a little bit of this when the Tea Party was around. The Tea Party advocates would call up and saying would 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 challenge us, and I agree that we need to include conservative, right wing um, viewpoints in in our journalism. But when it gets to the point of line, when it gets to the point where things are not true, I think that's when we have to set the line and say no, we're not going to do that, and we we need to call it out. Well, just as a final note on this subject, uh, from the critic Lorraine Ali from the L.A. Times, she says the careful, equitable reporting of PBS NewsHour and NPR remains a valuable public service. But in this age of extremes, the point-counterpoint structure is sorely out of step with the bombast of politicians like Congresswoman Green and the fact-bending screed of hangers-on like Rudy Giuliani. I think we're going to be talking a lot more of this uh, as we go forward. This is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. I'm Ira Fussfeld with Alan Shartok, Ian Pickus, and Judy Patrick. I sent around a story to the group, and they probably were wondering why we'd be interested in it, but something about it uh, sparked a note for me. And this was a feature in the Washington Post about a TV journalist by the name of Wendy Rieger, who had been a anchor on the news in Washington for decades. You know, all of the markets have somebody like Wendy Rieger who comes into your homes every night of the week, I, I think, in the Capital District of the late Ed Daig or the still active Liz Bishop in New York City, Chuck Scarborough and Sue Simmons. And um, so she's been around, That's and she's just retired now after 33 years. But she told a story that sparked a note for me. She said early in her career, she covered a vigil by the family and friends of two men whose plane had gone missing. The group camped at a municipal airport for several days, and Rieger got to know them during her daily live updates from the scene. One day, just before airtime, a search team reported that he had found the, these planes wreckage and there were no survivors. Uh, as she went on the air, Rieger was close enough to hear the gasps and anguished cries from the families. Rieger reported the grim news, and then just before signing off, she lost it, breaking into sobs on live television. And she was, of course, uh, mortified, is the word that was used, and feared that it would hurt her career. I'm wondering whether you, you guys, particularly the broadcast people, feel that it's appropriate for a reporter to react that way, or is it, should should we not be the steely-eyed, nothing-bothers-us reporters and let the readers and listeners and viewers decide what their own reactions are going to be. Well, you know, Ira, you're the, you're the moderator here, and you're a good moderator. So my question to you is, you don't get away with just moderating. You've got to give an opinion, too. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I, my opinion, is, as the Billy Martin used to say in the beer commercials, I feel strongly both ways. I um, I think that a uh, story such as the one I just described, it's hard for a reporter not to uh, be touched by it and to emote over it. Uh, that said, I'm an old-fashioned guy. I want to see – all I want to hear is the reporter giving the report. In the movie Broadcast News, when uh, you might remember the William Hurt character – uh, ends a, a news bulletin special by saying, I think we're going to be all right. And the director says, who cares what you think? Uh, so that's my opinion. What's yours? If I could, I think where things are going in this uh, space is 
In the world of podcasts, there are slightly different rules and a lot of good journalism is being done there. And you'll hear a lot more of what you talked about in that article, Ira, uh, with true crime podcasts, first person journalism, where the reporter becomes a character in the story. And I think that's the vanguard of how audio storytelling, at least, uh, is looking these days. And what you've described will become the rule and not the exception for a lot of serious and not so serious journalism that's being done. I mean, not everything's a... Uh, so dramatic as as this particular story. But um, in the long run, I think you'll hear a lot less of the old school kind of Cronkite approach and a lot more of the uh, here's what I saw and here's how it affected me sort of storytelling. Well, I don't know, Ian. Um, you know, uh, Ira it comes from another time. Uh, earlier, I don't mean to be disrespectful. In, in, oh, another time, in, another place. In, I'm an alien. In, in any way. But you, you come from an earlier time when there were a set of rules that we don't adhere to anymore. I have to admit, I've cried on the air uh, when uh, during a fun drive and I'm telling a story or something like that happens. And we can uh, argue whether or not I'm an official newscaster or not. But, you know, I do think that people have come to respect the idea that people can have passions and reporters can have passions and that that's, that's important too. You've got a, a young reporter who is... Uh, doesn't know the old rules and is interviewing somebody who's plainly a racist uh, and calls him on it or her on it. My own feeling about this is we're evolving into a place where we can uh, and fortunately can give opinions. Walter Cronkite, as you mentioned, uh, said, you know, he was largely responsible, many people think, for ending the Vietnam War because he gave his opinions. So I am not one who feels that we have strayed. Rather, I think we're going forward. Well, it's funny you mentioned Cronkite because he's the only example that I could think of on a national level, big-time broadcaster, who almost lost it. And that, of course, is during that famous time when Kennedy was assassinated. And we've all seen the, the newsreel clips of him announcing the death and then taking a deep breath, looking like he was about to cry and then catching himself. But I can't remember any, any other time that I've, I've noticed that in broadcast journalism. Judy, what about print? I mean, it's obviously, we don't see what the reporters uh, look like while they're sitting over their computer screens, but how involved do you want your reporters to be with a story? You know, I think Ian's right when it comes to podcasts and, and you're getting a different kind of um, involvement by the reporter with the interview subject. And, you know, print reporters and, you know, it's merging print, digital, audio, it's all merging into one at this point. And print reporters have the luxury, their, their reaction isn't going to show up in print. They can get involved when they're interviewing someone. But that tends to happen, I mean, I must say, with younger reporters, as mm -hmm. older reporters have seen so much, and, you know, they kind of get hardened. I mean, I, I'll have to be blunt about it. And they will see a lot of bad things in the course of a career, and they just get, you know, tough, and they um, often don't let down their guards. But, I mean, I've seen, seen even veteran reporters come back from, um, a horrific fire or an accident or and and they, they they will be you know they will be traumatized and in fact we have uh, our industry works hard to help reporters um, deal with trauma when they encounter it. I mean we don't have to deal with war but um, there are legions of reporters out there that have to see war have to see you know school shootings I mean this is horrific stuff and where reporters are human the the goal, however, is for, for them to put those emotions aside and 
so they can objectively report. But I agree with Ian. Um, the podcasts bring another dimension to reporting, and I welcome that. I, I used to find that in the newsrooms that I hung out in that there was a gallows humor, that there was uh, mm-hmm. there, there might be a tragedy, and before long there were jokes being made in the newsroom. And uh, it, it, on the one hand, it's, uh, you know, it's unseemly, and on the other hand, I think it was sort of a defense mechanism so that you, you'd, you'd laugh so that you wouldn't be crying. I was actually um, standing yeah. in a television newsroom at one point when the assignment editor said, big crash on the thruway, and one of the reporters yelled out, anybody dead? And yeah. and, and the guy said, no. Uh, and the reporter used an expletive. Uh, yeah, we, we, we used to get a bulletin that would come in and say 300 people died in a plane crash in Japan. And the first uh, question we had, anybody local? I mean, that was, that was the, the question, not, not 300 people died. Well, okay, so that is that, and uh, we are running out of time, but oh, I no. wanted to at least uh, touch on on a subject we've talked about frequently, and that is the change, the dissolving of newspapers and wh- who or what are filling in the void. And uh, according to a report in Axios, independent digital outlets and nonprofits have begun to fill some of the gap list left by fading local newspapers. And it speaks to a number of new online publishers that have come up, and et cetera, uh, and all of whom uh, appear to be nonprofit. But there still remains a question as to whether or not they can, even in the nonprofit mode, pay for the people that they have, and uh, that the, pe- the number of people they have is often fewer than the depleted newspapers that they're trying to replace. Uh, all of which is to say this is still an evolving situation, but uh, there is going to be and there is already becoming a tipping point, and it's, and it's expressed by a man named Stephen Waldman, who is the co-founder of Report for America, a local journalism nonprofit, who says the decline of local newspapers has not just led to more government corruption and waste, but also polarization and misinformation. What say you? Well, the more obviously, the more the more information you have, the more intelligent you could be about making up your mind about things, and readers should be put into that category. Uh, on the other hand, it's just one more sign of, you know, the general death of newspapers. I know this isn't something that goes over well on this panel, uh, with many of you having you know done your thing that way, but um, they they do seem as one newspaper publisher i knew once said to me about something else stick a fork in it <laughs> well i i know judy and ian are not going to believe this but alan's going to have to get the last word because we're running low on time and so i'm going to halt it right here and tell you that this has been the media project thank you very much for listening happy new year i'm ira fussfeld for Alan Shartok, Ian Pickers, and Judy Patrick, please join us again next week for another edition of The Media Project. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press.
The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC. Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Judy Patrick is the Vice President for Editorial Development for the New York Press Association. Ian Pickus is WAMC's News Director. And Ira Fussfeld is the Publisher Emeritus of The Daily Freeman. You can find out more or schedule a podcast at WAMC.org or just download the free WAMC app from the Play Store for your iPhone or Android and listen to the Media Project anytime, anywhere. Thanks for listening.